Pew Bibles in front of you. The passage is on 811, 811. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? It's Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his, life sp- to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is where the Lord Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we're here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're, we're trucking along uh, here in Matthew chapter 6. And what we're going to do is we're going to close out Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Um, what we're going to see is that there's a couple of more sermons that are coming along from Matthew chapter 7. Brady, are you going to grab What we're going to see is that there's a couple more sermons coming around in Matthew chapter 7. But this morning, what we're going to do is find Christ wrapping up this idea, and he's going to look to this idea of anxiety. Last week, we introduced with an illustration of someone who is experiencing pain in their body. Um, There's a person who had a pain in their leg, and because they had a pain in their leg, what they did was they went to the doctor. They went to the doctor. The doctor is a good doctor. And so what he's going to do is he's going to seek to diagnose the problem that's going on in their leg. A good physician, we said, will begin to diagnose your problem not by just immediately going after the pain in your leg, giving you some sort of painkiller or whatnot. He won't just immediately take you into surgery. What he's going to do is start asking you questions so he can find the root that is underneath the problem. So he's going to ask you questions like which leg hurts and Where exactly does your leg hurt and what were you doing that caused you to notice the pain? Because this doctor knows that your pain is not necessarily the problem. Your pain is just a symptom of something that is deeper. Therefore, he's not going to merely just address the symptom, just giving you some painkillers, trying to mask the pain. What this doctor is going to do is he's going to start to poke and prod on your body. He's asking questions. He's trying to to dive down and to find the root of your pain. So if the doctor discovers that you have a broken leg, it is at this point, having first diagnosed the deeper issue, that he would then proceed to a prescription. 
what you need, as he's going to tell us, is you need to reset the bone and put your leg in a cast. You don't need just to deal with the pain. What we need to do is fix the problem. You have a bone shooting out of your leg. Let's fix it. Stick it in a cast. Reset it. And this will be the thing that actually addresses and fixes the symptom. So this doctor first hunts for a proper diagnosis that then leads to a proper prescription that actually addresses the root of the problem. And when we turn to Matthew chapter 6 to these verses in front of us this morning, verse 25 through 34, Jesus in a very similar way is continuing in this vein of being the great physician. He's following the exact same pattern as he preaches to us from the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Jesus gave us a diagnosis. He gave us these diagnostic questions so we can find out the problems and the aches and the the things of our heart that cause us to drift from a singular vision of God. And now, this morning, he's going to turn and give us a proper prescription that actually addresses the root of the problem. So when you scale back and you look at Matthew chapter 6 as a whole, because what we need to recognize is Matthew 25 through 34, it's a pretty popular piece of Scripture. Um, When you deal with anxiety, a lot of people will point you here to this place. And it's good to do that. It's right to do that. But one of the dangers is we lose sight of the power of the words of Christ here in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, when we don't see it in its context. Jesus is weaving a bigger picture around the context of anxiety here when you look at the whole of what he has to say in Matthew chapter 6. So when you scale back and look at Matthew 6 as a whole, what you see is that it divides pretty evenly into two parts. In Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus addresses the issue of hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy. He addresses the issue of what it looks like to just merely be doing Christian-y sort of things, saying the right thing, going to the right place, doing the right stuff, but noticing that at the heart level, what you're doing is you're ultimately doing these things that is completely devoid of God. And Jesus addressed the issue of hypocrisy. The last half of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, what we looked at last week and what we'll look at today, Jesus is going to address the issue of anxiety. Now, Jesus knows that hypocrisy and anxiety, when we deal with them at the heart level, what they are, they are symptoms of a deeper root problem. Hypocrisy just merely alone is not the problem. Anxiety merely alone, it is not just the problem. Hypocrisy and anxiety are symptoms of a deeper root problem. They look different on the outside. I mean, religious hypocrisy doesn't necessarily look like anxiety of the heart. But they actually have the exact same diagnosis. See, hypocrisy and anxiety are the result of a heart that shifts from a singular Christ-centered gaze to a singular self-centered gaze. Hypocrisy is when the practice of our righteousness shifts from God's glory to self-glory. 
We've lost sight of God. We're doing religious stuff, religious things, right things, practicing our righteousness, the righteousness that has been given to us in Christ, the righteousness that we've been clothed with because we're in Christ. Jesus says, practice these things. Show the world. Live in such a way that you exhibit this righteousness you have with the Father through the Christ, through Jesus Christ. And in verse 1, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You're doing right things, but the heart motive is wrong. You're no longer doing it with a God-centered view in mind. You're doing it with a self-centered view in mind. Jesus knows that anxiety creeps in and grips the heart when the devotion of our heart shifts from trusting in God's provision alone to trusting in ourself for our own provision. You're no longer operating and thinking in such a way where you're submitting yourselves to the rule and the reign and the sovereignty of God. We take our vision off of God and then we start to put our vision on the things around the world, in the world around us. And what we start to think is this, God can't do this. God doesn't know about this thing that I'm dealing with. But I don't trust that God is powerful enough to speak this reality, speak into my reality. And what we do is we start to close our eyes to the Christ and we start to focus our gaze on everything around us. So Jesus, having given us questions of diagnosis, in order to help us see our deeper root problem, is now going to turn to a proper prescription for this anxiety. And what Jesus says is just incredibly simple. Kingdom citizens are not to be consumed by anxiety. Rather, they are to first and foremost be consumed by a desire for God and His kingdom. Kingdom citizens are not to be consumed by anxiety. Rather, they are to first and foremost be consumed by a desire for God and His kingdom. So look at your copy of Scripture. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to give us the main point of these verses. The main point of these verses are going to come to us in two different phrases. One's going to be positive and one's going to be negative, but they're going to come together into one big argument. So when you look at verse 25, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Verse 34, Jesus says, Do not be anxious, about tomorrow. Do not do these things. Do not operate in this way. Do not be consumed with anxiety. But on the other hand, what are we supposed to do? And the answer is found in verse 33. Do not seek anxiety. Do not let anxiety grip your soul. But on the other hand, realign your gaze to singularly rest on God and His kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Anxiety is an equal opportunity emotion. All of us deal with it. None of us are immune to anxiety gripping our hearts. All of us in some way have felt the unease of a nervous soul. That overwhelming feeling that creeps up on you and seizes you, gripping you with a fear of the unknown. You, you look to the horizon, you look to the tomorrow, and what you realize is, I don't know how that's going to play out. 
And the fact that you don't know how it's going to play out creeps into the moment and it just grips you and it seizes you and it causes you to get nervous and it causes you to, to worry and it causes you to be gripped with a, with a fear, with, with anxiety. And this can happen in any realm of life from, from really high-level problems like war or terrorism, racial prejudice, oppression, immorality. You just look at the world around you. It's easy for us to see these really high-level things and start to think, like, how is this going to work out? And what does this mean? And, and where is this going to go? And how is this going to affect me? And our, our souls start to get nervous and worry and become anxious about these things. Or maybe it's at a more personal level. Dealing with problems like a struggling marriage, divorce, singleness, abandonment, being anxious because you struggle with loneliness. Maybe you suffer and struggle with anxiety because you're striving for that promotion at work. You don't know if you're going to get it. Maybe you're looking at a potential loss of a job. School deadlines, job deadlines, maybe it's in the world of money, personal finances, can't balance the budget, not making enough money, don't know how we're going to hit retirement, don't know how we're going to pay this month's mortgage, how are we going to handle the children's college savings. Many of us become anxious because of the way our families just fight and feud and there's division. Some of us are anxious because we have rebellious children. Some of us are anxious because we're caring for aging parents. Some of us are anxious because of death. I mean, the the possibilities are just seemingly infinite on why we could struggle with anxiety. Each and every one of us, this this is just a picture of Scripture, each and every one of us has been here struggling with anxiety, taken captive by anxiety. So the question we have is like, so what in the world do we do? Like, what's the hope for our soul in those moments when anxiety is like just consuming us? It's just landed in our lap and it's just eating our lunch and there's seemingly no hope to battle this anxious, overwhelming, nervous worry that's just consuming our thoughts, our time, and our energy. What is our hope when we find our hearts sick with soul-crushing anxiety? The answer is found in the words of Christ here in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Do not be anxious. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. See, this is Christ's main point. His main point is actually one big argument that is meant to be used like an antidote to cure the anxious heart. So what do you do when your soul is sick with anxiety? What you do is this, is you administer the medicine of his promise. You go to the words of Christ himself. Jesus stands with the antidote to anxiety, ready to administer, showing you when your soul is anxious and you find yourself drifting in this way, what you do is you go to the very promises of God. You go to the scriptures. You go to the words of Christ himself. See, the rock-solid promises of God are the weapons given to you and me by God, weapons that are at our disposal so that we can slay the sickness of anxiety. And notice that Jesus points us to the promise that defeats anxiety. And so he says this, this is the promise. Do, Do not be anxious. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. So Jesus points us to the promise that defeats anxiety, but then he not only does that, he teaches us how to argue this promise on our behalf. 
Jesus just doesn't deliver the promise and then just step back and go, here's the promise. I sure hope you figure this out. What he says is, this is the promise. Don't be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then what he does is he delivers that promise and then equips us to preach that promise to ourselves. And according to the text here in verses 25 through 34, Jesus gives six arguments on why kingdom citizens can trust this promise of God and not be anxious. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about this piece of Scripture here. See, what Jesus isn't giving, and I've said this over and over again, Jesus isn't just giving us some pearls of wisdom. He's not just giving us some really great tweets or some little Facebook Facebook update posts and just, you know, here's a little thought and there's a little thought and there's just no seemingly rhyme or reason. What Jesus is doing here when he says, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about what you will eat. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. He's giving us his main point, but then all of those other words in between those three verses that call it to not be anxious, Jesus actually goes to bat for us showing us here are arguments rooted in this promise that I want you to learn, to understand, to memorize, to meditate, and then to employ against anxiety when it comes your way. I mean, this is the beauty of Scripture. You have a rock-solid foundation in Christ and what he's saying. He loves you and me with his words and says, don't do this, let me tell you how to think, but now let me show you what to think. So the first thing that Jesus does in verse 25 is he says, do not be anxious. And his first argument looks like this. Your life is more than food or clothing. Your life is more than food or clothing. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what will you put on. And here's this first argument. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Christ's first argument revolves around a disciple's life. What he's saying is this. Life's necessities are meant to be your servants, which assist you in your wholehearted devotion to Christ and his kingdom. Life's necessities are never meant to be the master of your life. So when we get this order out of whack, what we often do is fall into anxiety losing sight of Christ and worrying about the necessities of life instead of focusing on the Lord of life. Jesus argues that we should not worry about food, drink, and clothing because God cares for life itself, which encompasses food, drink, and clothing. So Jesus is arguing from like a greater to lesser here. He says, listen, step back and think about this. Is God the sovereign creator of all of life? And Scripture teaches us to answer that question with a yes. And so Jesus is saying this, logically think about If God is the creator of all of life, and God is the sustainer of all of life, if he knows your life intimately and intricately, then what you can do is rest assured this. All the little component parts that make up your life, things like food, things like drink, things like clothing, if he's caring for this great high level, then you can rest assured that he's going to care for these lesser things that make up this big part known as your life. 
God cares for the greater thing, for your life as a whole, then we certainly can trust and know and rest that he cares for the lesser things, the little parts that sustain us each day. Therefore, the follower of Jesus is not to worry about such needs as basic as they are. What we can do is trust and rest. When our soul begins to become anxious, what we can do is step back and employ this argument, going from the greater level. Listen, if God has my life and he knows it intricately, then surely he's got this thing. And that's one of the first arguments that Jesus teaches us. Second thing Jesus says is this. Do not be anxious. Your life has extreme value. Do not be anxious. Your life has extreme value. And Jesus gives two arguments to support this thought. Do not be anxious. Your life has supreme value. Look in your copy of Scripture. Look at verse 26. Jesus points to the value of your life as an argument against anxiety. And in these two arguments, Jesus moves from the lesser to the greater. So the first argument was greater to the lesser. When he calls us to look at the birds of the air and consider the lilies, he's now going to move from the lesser to the greater. So verse 26 says this, look at the birds of the air. Jesus is actually saying, go bird watching. Walk out your back door, grab your binoculars, observe them, look at them. Note how they think, note, note how they operate, note what they do, note how they fly, note, note how they're just so seemingly carefree. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And here is this argument. Are you not of more value than they? See, birds of the air work but not in an organized way. See, there are no birds with agricultural degrees. There are no birds planting seeds with the foresight of reaping their produce at the end of the harvest. They don't build barns hoping for a bumper crop so that they can store up their food for the winter. Yes, these birds hop around. Yes, these birds fly. Yes, these birds peck at food. But the overarching protection over their life is God himself who feeds them and sustains them. And so Jesus says, listen, look at them. If they, these birds who fly around so carefree, if they of such little value receive this great amount of provision from God, just imagine how much more you of such extreme value will receive God's provision. If your heavenly Father cares for little birds, then how much more will he surely care for you who is created in his image? Jesus says, not only go bird watching, but what we should do is go and look at plant life. Go and look at the lilies of the field. Go, go and look at the grass of the field. Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon, King Solomon, in all his glory, in all his toil, in all his spinning, Solomon was not even closely arrayed like one of these lilies of the field. But if God so clothes even the grass of the field with a glory greater than Solomon, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, and here's the argument, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus beckons us to also look at the lilies and the grass of the field. 
his argument sounds like this. If God is so concerned to beautify the flowers of the field and clothe the grass with a spectacular array of glory, which is destined to be cut down and thrown into a fire, how much more will he be concerned to clothe us, to care for us, and to supply the basic necessities of his people? And we have to step back and remember, like, I've read this piece of scripture who knows how many times, but my mind almost never, never drifts here to these two parts when I just feel that anxious worry creep into my heart. Remember, Jesus is arguing for us right now. What he's saying is this, when you have that thing, that singular thing that's creeping into your life that is just causing you to spin out into anxiety, what he says is this, you need to stop and immediately start thinking about the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and the grass of the field. If God cares for these little things, then the logical conclusion you can draw is this, is that he absolutely cares for you. Your life has extreme value. Recognize the value of your life. As God's crowning creation, we all hold extreme value in the eyes of the Father. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are folded into the family of God. In Christ, our Father treats us as a child of His kingdom. And for this reason, Jesus says we can rest in the fact that He cares for you and knows your needs. Next thing that Jesus says, the next argument He gives is this. Do not be anxious. Why? Because your life is in the hands of the Father. You see this in verse 27. So here's another argument. Jesus says, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Your life is in the hands of the Father. The fourth argument against anxiety is here. And this argument against anxiety rests on the fact that your life and my life are completely within control. They fall completely under the realm of our sovereign God and Father. God is the one who has designed your life. He knows the end of your life from the beginning of your life. He plans each step of the way of your life to fulfill His purposes for you and through you. God is the one who sets your boundaries. God is the one who has ordained good works for us to complete. And you will have all that you need to fulfill that purpose. So if God has set for you a certain amount of days on this earth, which he has, what we can rest assured is this, is that God will make sure you have everything you need in order for you to carry out his will, to carry out his plan, to carry out his purpose and his design for your singular life. And until that day comes when he is ordained for you to die, what we can do is be free from anxiety because we can trust and rest. God knows that this day is out here. And I'm going to trust and rest in him for this day because whenever that day is, he alone knows, whenever that day before that day comes, I can fall back and rest on the Father, trusting and resting in him, knowing listen, if that day is out here in the future, that he surely got today. I can wake up tomorrow and go, well, he surely got today. Wake up the next day after that and go, well, he surely got today. What that does is it quickly moves us into the realm where we freely can give up our struggles with anxiety. God will perfectly sustain all your needs for every hour of your life until the moment that he has set comes to pass. 
So Jesus gives us that argument there. He knows the beginning and the end of your life. The next argument that Jesus gives is found in verses 31 and 32. This is the fifth and the sixth argument that Jesus gives. Do not be anxious. Your heavenly Father is sovereign. So yes, God knows the boundaries of our life. He is the sustainer of our life. And this idea readily flows into this argument that Jesus gives in verses 31 and 32. Do not be anxious. Your Father is sovereign. He knows what is going on in your life. So here Jesus in verses 31 and 32, says, do not be anxious. He's repeating the command. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. There's one argument. Don't be anxious. Why? The Gentiles seek after these things. Don't be anxious. Why? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And there's the second argument there, okay? So Jesus is saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the unbelievers of Jesus' day. Don't, don't operate like the people who do not know God, who do not have a right theological view of how God operates and who God is in his person and his character and in his nature. Don't be like the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who completely consume themselves with the necessities of life. Jesus says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. What are the these things? The things that he's just talked about in verse 31, the eating, the drinking, and the wearing, the Gentiles seek after these things. They give themselves over to these things. These unbelievers do not know that the Heavenly Father knows that we have need of all these things. And so they try to do for themselves what they do not expect God to do. The real deceit of anxiety is that we buy this lie as believers and we begin to functionally live as unbelievers. If we're not careful, constantly realigning ourselves to who God is, to a right view of who God is in His sovereignty and the way that He operates, knowing that we have need of all of these things, what we eat and what we drink and what we wear and just the necessities of life. If we lose sight of these things, what we do is we begin to drift from a right understanding of God, taking our eyes off of God, and we start drifting and functionally living out like unbelievers, freaking out, going, what's God going to do here? I don't know if He, he can do it. Is he, He's powerful? Does He know my need? Is He going to care if he even knows is he even just going to love me enough to even provide for me in this way and we start to drift thinking wrongly and jesus is realigning us calling us to realign our gaze to singularly come back to christ see the real deceit of anxiety is that we buy this lie and begin to function and live as unbelievers we assume god does not know our needs he's too powerless to do anything about our needs therefore we try to do for ourselves we don't expect from god but when we know our Father who knows our needs and works to meet them, it is here that we can begin to put anxiety to death. So here Jesus is arguing, giving us another argument. The scriptural reality that God is sovereign is a strong antidote for the heart that is prone to anxiety. Another argument that Jesus gives is this. Do not be anxious. Your Father is the true supplier of your needs. So when you go down in verse 33, what we have is Jesus drawing the end conclusion to what he said in verses 31 and 32. 
right? There's a danger in verses 31 and 32. It sounds like Jesus saying this, hey, don't, listen, don't worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. You know, all those unbelievers, take, you know, they're the ones consumed with those things. What you need to do is seek first the kingdom of God. And the question sort of comes like, but how am I going to eat? Like, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? Like, where am I going to live? And how am I going to put clothes on my body? What Jesus isn't saying, when, when, when he says, do not be anxious about eating and drinking and wearing, what he's not saying is, don't give any care for these things. What he's saying is, don't give them supremacy in your life. Don't let your heart fall in love with the chasing after of these things. That's what the Gentiles do. What you're to do is to allow your heart to move your heart, to set your heart's devotion and affections on the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And notice that Jesus gives a promise of what will happen when we do this. Listen, God is sovereign. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, these things the Gentiles seek after, the eating and the drinking and the wearing. So what I want you to do is to not devote yourself to the kind of seeking that the unbelievers give themselves to, but I want you to devote yourself to the kind of seeking that kingdom citizens give themselves to, which is seeking first the kingdom of God, seeking his righteousness. And then this glorious promise comes along where Jesus says this, and all these things, the eating, the drinking, the wearing, the necessities of life in order to sustain you so that you fulfill the design of God in your life, these things will be added to you. That's a promise that Christ is giving us. It is God telling us, you can trust me. You can trust me. You can rest in me to provide for your needs. Be free from the fear of self-reliance. Give yourself wholeheartedly to God-reliance. When you come to verse 34, what you have is the, the summary conclusion. Jesus repeats his main idea once more. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Simply put, Jesus is saying that we should not worry about tomorrow because we can stay busy enough attending to the tasks and the troubles of today. What I like about it is just Jesus being honest. He's like, listen, today's got troubles. Like Jesus isn't living in some fairyland. What Jesus is not saying is, hey, don't be anxious about today. After all, there's really nothing to be anxious about. Get your act together. He's saying there are things to be anxious about. There's legitimate cause for worry in your lives But let me direct you in this way. Don't be consumed with the tomorrows. Be consumed with the today. Give yourself to attending to the tasks and the troubles of today. Jesus acknowledges that today will have enough trouble to keep us busy. So let tomorrow go. Focus your attention on seeking God and his kingdom. Anchor yourself on these promises that Jesus is giving us, these arguments that Jesus is giving us, and apply them to the present situation today against anxiety. So how do we respond to this? What's our call to action? I think what we need to first understand is this, is just that the unmistakable call of Christ from this passage of Scripture is that kingdom citizens are not to be consumed with anxiety, just in case we've missed that main point. Jesus is saying it over and over and over again. He wants us to understand, do not be anxious but do be consumed with God and his kingdom. But for many of us, listening to these words from Christ and to even begin to contemplate, but living totally without worry 
what we do is we draw the conclusion that this is impossible. You're basically asking me like to live without breathing. I can't live without breathing, and you're telling me I can't live without being anxious. It's just not possible. And our temptation is to drift to these scriptures, see what Jesus says, and then draw the conclusion that Jesus, he's a nut job. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know my problem. He doesn't know that thing that's eating my lunch. These words of Christ, impossible. You might as well be, be asking me to live without breathing. But Jesus stands with the rest of Scripture calling us to kill our anxiety with the promises of God. See, he's calling us to kill anxiety with prayer by teaching us to pray. See, it's, this is part of the reason why we read Scripture in context because now we're starting to see why the Lord's Prayer is just dotted right in the middle of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus isn't saying nothing, anything new necessarily. What he's doing is he's calling us like, listen, reorient yourself. God is God-centered. You were created for His glory. Let me show you how to pray. Our Father in heaven, God, I want your name to be made holy. I want your name to be set apart. So, Father, please give us this day our daily bread. Jesus even teaches us that the way we kill anxiety is not going, I've got to have bread, I've got to have this need, I've got to have, I've got to have, I've got to have, I've got to have. What he says is this, the one thing that you've got to have is God himself. So give yourself wholeheartedly to God. And one of the promises is, is that as we do that, the cry of the believer's heart is going to be this, God, your glory, I want it to be spread to the four corners of the globe. And Jesus says that will actually lead you to go, God, please give me this day, our daily bread. Sustain my daily need for today. And God delights in granting that because why? It ultimately roll up into glory for glory to the Father. Jesus calls us to kill anxiety with prayer. He joins the chorus of Paul who called us to fight anxiety with prayer. The other famous piece of scripture dealing with anxiety is Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Great, Paul. Thanks for that little tidbit. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Peter joins the chorus as well. The other piece of scripture that talks about anxiety, Peter comes along and says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Don't pridefully operate as one who thinks, we've got it, God can't do it. No, humble yourself. Recognize God is God. You are not God. In humility, clothe yourself. Humble yourself, go to the Father, submit yourself under the mighty, sovereign, loving, good, steadfast hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time He may exalt you. Yes, cast all your anxieties on Him because, why? Four glorious words. He cares for you. He cares for you. That's a promise. I mean, let that anchor itself into the belly of your soul. God cares for you. He cares for you. In the, in the thing that is bringing anxiety into your life right now, God cares for you. This isn't a promise for somebody else. This is a promise for you. And because he cares for you, cast, cast your anxiety on him. 
But the ultimate reason why we run to Christ is not so that we can see Him turn and point us to another cure for anxiety. What we don't do is run to Christ as the great physician and say, I've got, I've got anxieties, Christ. I have, I have worries. I have a nervous soul. What, what am I supposed to do? We don't run to Jesus so Jesus can stand here and go, man, I don't know. Why don't you go out there and check something out? No, the reason why we run to Christ with our anxieties is so that Christ can go, good, cast your anxieties on me because I am the ultimate cure for your anxiety. We don't run to Christ so that he can turn and point us to some other cure. No, we run to Christ because Christ himself is the cure for anxiety. See, in those moments when we are anxious, in the throes of nervous worry, what all of us long for, what all of us desire, what all of us are aching for is the peace of God which surpasses understanding. That's what we want in those moments. We want the peace of soul that destroys anxiety. And when you scale back and you look at the totality of Scripture, the good news message of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace and He is the one who brings peace to us and His desire is for your life and my life to be marked by the peace that can only be found in Him and in nothing else. A peace with God which has been attained for us by the cross of Christ. Isaiah 53, Christ was pierced for our transgressions. Christ was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. A peace which can truly be known for those rooted in Christ himself. It is Jesus who stands in John 14 and says, Peace I leave with you my peace I give to you. You're not going to find this peace in the world, so let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. My peace from the Prince of Peace I give to you. So the response is this, it's to come. It's to seek. It's to flee. It's to go. It's to run to Jesus. Whether you're a believer who struggles with anxiety or whether you're an unbeliever in need of salvation found in Christ alone, whether you're a believer who struggles with just those daily trustings of God that God has got this moment or whether you're an unbeliever who's just traveling the wide path that seems good, the wide path that seems right according to the world, running it, walking it, treading it towards destruction, towards hell, towards a life separated from God. It doesn't matter what category you fall into. The answer of Scripture is this. It is the grace of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the answer for you and what you're struggling with. Jesus himself says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, but my burden is light. So I'm going to pray. As I pray, the band's going to come. And what we're going to do is move into another time of response, where we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Some of you need to respond in this way. What you need to do is bend your knee and you need to confess, I've not been casting my anxieties on God. I've been casting my anxieties on me and I've been dealing with this problem. 
God cares for you, and your response is going to be to recognize that, trust God in that, and cast your anxieties onto him. For some of you who are here this morning who are unbelievers, what you need is the same thing. You're going to cast your life upon Jesus Christ himself. He is your only hope of salvation. Some of you are going to respond by singing. Some of you are going to respond with communion, coming to this table, two in the front, coming to the one in the back. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a good and right way for you to respond. And so the invitation is come, cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. His burden is easy. His burden is light. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to us through the scriptures. God, I pray for myself right now that just as my heart is prone to be anxious about certain things, my confession is this. I know exactly what's going on in that moment. I am taking my eyes off of you, assuming you can do nothing about this, assuming that you somehow messed up by putting me in this situation. I begin to doubt your goodness. I begin to doubt my trust in you. I begin to think that you, yes, you're good, but in this moment you didn't really know what was going on and you, you messed up. You, you took me to somewhere where I ought not to be, but the totality of Scripture is this. That's just not the reality. So God, would you help grant the necessary grace for for me and my brothers and sisters to fight the unbelief that so easily ensnares our heart and draws us to cast our anxieties on us and to not cast our anxieties upon God because we've drawn the false conclusion that he does not care for us. Oh God, the grace that is necessary for this to be reality is found in you and you alone. May we not try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps here and to kill anxiety in this way, but would we be a people who lay ourselves down at the foot of the cross, finding the necessary grace in you alone to see this come to pass. In Jesus' name, I pray these things.